0: The passage we're going to be looking at, and I'm going to read that for us. It can be found on the insert that you have in your bulletin or, of course, in the scriptures. This is Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Hear the word of the Lord. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. The word of the Lord. Well, how was your Christmas and New Year's? You know, if any of you have seen this bulletin here, it's actually for the Christmas service. It's the 26th. In the, in the interest of economy of effort, we're recycling a whole service. Uh, so I was prepared to talk all about Christmas, but I got to talk about New Year's as well. But uh, hopefully you've got a lot of good stuff and presents and it was a good time. And uh, hopefully there was much feasting. You know, in the Rodriguez house, we do a lot of feasting. Let me give you the sort of lineup of how it goes. Christmas Eve, we do a Bethlehem dinner. So after the Christmas Eve service, which was a great service, wasn't it? Great service. We go home and we do this Bethlehem dinner where we try to simulate what Joseph and Mary ate. So we sit all around the coffee table and we have fish, imitation crab meat, sausage, sausage. And, uh, you know, meat and cheese, and we kind of simulate what they ate. If they ate the way we ate, they would be 300 pounds. They never would have made it to Bethlehem. Uh, <laughs> but we have this great Bethlehem dinner. And then in the morning, Lee Ellen does all of this stuff. We have this donut hole tree, uh, and, and a spinach casserole, and a, and a pastry, and, a, and the food just starts flowing. And then for dinner, we do Cornish, we've been doing this for years dinner we do this great elaborate dinner Cornish game hens and just really do it all up it, it was just wonderful and that's when things really get going because after Christmas then we go to grandma's house okay over the river and through the woods and when you go to grandma's house Lee Ellen's, uh, Lee Ellen's mom gosh these people they can cook and they're into cooking it was kind of funny I didn't grow up in a big sort of feasting you know where everything revolves around food I, uh, <laughs> I brought Lee Ellen to, to meet the family. And we're there the first morning, and it's probably like 10 o'clock. And she comes over to me and she says, Carlos, why don't we go to eat? I'm starving. And I'm like, what? You know, because we, we're not like a big meal people. We'll eat when we eat. But when I went to Lee Ellen's house to meet her family, then I started to discover what feasting really was. Because they go big with everything. And Lee Ellen's grandmother, God rest her soul, her name is Nell Rose Mays. Okay, can you get more southern than Nell Rose Mays? I don't think so. So when the fried chicken starts coming, it's amazing. And so when we go to her house, it's, you know, there's always a big meal. It's the turkey and the ham and the casserole and the green bean. It just goes on and on and on. And by the end of it, you're just begging, please stop. You're like that seagull, you know when they eat too much and then they just spontaneously combust right there in the air? That's how I feel like when I'm done with a meal at the Bristol Household. Well, I want to talk a little bit about feasting today. Talk about feasting. See, the reality of feasting is we have two appetites. Did you know that? You know a cow how he has four a four-chambered stomach? We have two stomachs. We have a stomach for the body and we have a stomach for the soul feasting for the body and feasting for the soul the truth of the matter is it's pretty easy to find satisfaction for the body you know just marry a good cook or have a couple bucks you go out to a great meal and you can find feasting for the body but finding a feast for the soul is much more difficult it's hard to find satisfaction for the soul often we end up so much more with a famine than a feast. But this passage, Psalm 63, is so important because David claims that he has found satisfaction with God. He claims to have been found this feast, and a feast in the desert, no less. If you know a little bit about the background of this passage, David's entire life is in shambles. He's been forced to flee from the kingdom. His kingdom's been taken away. His wife's been taken away. He's in the desert, and yet he, he claims to have found this feast for the soul that satisfies his heart. You know, I want to spend the next couple of minutes figuring out what is it that David has found? What would you and I give to find a feast for the soul which never ended? wouldn't that be great to find a feast for the soul? David has discovered a truth, a hidden secret that I want to open up to you today. And here it is. The amount of hunger that you bring to God is the amount of satisfaction that God will bring to you. Again, the amount of hunger that you bring to God is directly proportional to the amount of satisfaction that God will bring to you. I wanna talk about this feast of the soul. There are really three elements to this feast of the soul as I read it. Number one, it's a feast for the hungry. It's only for those who are hungry. If you're hungry, this feast is for you. Number two, it's the feast that satisfies. The one that can truly bring satisfaction. And then finally, it's the feast that glorifies. Well, let's look at these three things. First, the feast for the hungry. Again, a little background on David. David is writing in the desert of Judah. And David is writing here because he has been betrayed by his son, Absalom. He's been forced to flee from his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so he is rushed out because the word on the street is Absalom has taken power and he's coming to kill you. And so David, with just a few of his possessions, a few of his people, has been forced on this sort of death march to get away from Absalom before he wipes him out and takes over his kingdom. And so he's riding in this desert. His kingdom has been taken from him. His wife, at least one of his wife, his concubines have been taken from him, given to another man, either Absalom, who's taken the concubines, or given away his wife. The entire army no longer belongs to him. In fact, there are about 10,000 men who are searching at this very moment, trying to find David to take his life, as David is penning this psalm. Now think about that. 10,000 men, and at the head of this army is Absalom, his son. Now I have three sons, and I love my sons. I can't imagine what it would feel like if one of my sons hated me so much that he wanted me dead and was coming with an army to kill me. That's what David is experiencing right now. So there's a sense of desperation that David has as he's writing his pen to the page. In fact, this may be the last thing that David ever writes. But look at what he writes in this time of desperation. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David's life is crashing all around him. Yet amazingly, what David calls out for is not rescue from his situation. It's not restitution of his kingdom and his property and his possessions. It's not even restoration to his son Absalom. He cries out for the living God. Listen to his words. Oh God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. These are powerful words. They're words of addiction. If I was to walk into an alcohol or drug treatment center, these are the sort of words that I would hear uttered. David is an addict He has this immense hunger in his heart, but his hunger is for God. David is tantamount to saying, I will die, God, if I don't have you. And you alone, nothing else will satisfy. See, the truth of the matter is, all mankind is hungry. Everyone has an immense hunger in their soul. Every living human that walks on the face of the earth. The famous 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal put it this way. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Well, the the 20th century New Jersey poet and philosopher Bruce Springsteen put it a lot easier. Everybody's got a hungry heart. The question is not if. The question is where do we go to satisfy it? See, all of us carry around in our hearts a menu. It's a menu of the soul. Please don't be distracted by the Panera. This is actually supposed to represent a menu of the soul. See, we can go without food for a fairly long amount of time if we have to. But we can't go without food for the soul. And so I, at much expense, have obtained a menu of the soul. Because there's a variety of selections that are available to satisfy this desire for the soul. In fact, let me read to you some of the specials out there for the menu of the soul. Here's one. Security sirloin. A generous peel-off of financial assets with a four-ounce topping of the choicest family and friend relationships, braised with a paid-off mortgage, complemented with a heaping portion of good health. That sounds delicious, doesn't it? Here's another one. Reputation ratatouille. This specialty dish begins with a roasted ensemble of club memberships, board positions, and job promotions. It's laid upon a pasta bed of the right crowd, the right neighborhood, and the right kids with a side salad dressed with looking the part. Man, that sounds fantastic. Oh, and here's the finale right here, the dessert. Possessions Pastry. Our pastry chefs take such care to stuff this delicacy with the richest of ingredients. The dream house, the German imported SUV, the finest wardrobe, the Caribbean vacation with just a drizzling of college tuition. Isn't that, man, fantastic? What a menu. Here's the problem with these tasty selections. Each is delicious, but they give us heartburn, don't they? They're so fragile. The market crashes. The doctor calls and the security sirloin is ruined. You lose your job and the gossip starts to spread and your reputation just slides right off the plate, doesn't it? The possessions pastry tasted so good going down, but it upsets your stomach. The things that you own all of a sudden begin to own you. Now hear me on this. I want to make this point. These in themselves are not bad things but they're not meant to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. David is saying the problem is not necessarily what's on this menu. What he's saying is it's the wrong menu. There's a different menu that David is ordering from, and it's right here. See, David has ordered from this menu before. Remember, he's the king. He's experienced things that no ordinary mortals have experienced. But in his hour of deepest need, in his deepest need, where he has his deepest hunger, he says, this won't do. I have to have this. Let me ask you, where's God on your menu? Where's God on this list of the feast of the soul? You might say to me, Carlos, I'm not buying this. I'm I'm not hungry at all. Then you're missing the point of this passage because this feast is only available for those who are hungry. So what's at the top? What's the thing that you'll go hungry if you don't find it, if you don't have it? Sometimes it's hard to really analyze what is it that that's deep thing that I look to to satisfy my soul. The best way to figure it out is to follow the trail of our time, our affection, our energy, our money and our loyalty. And when we follow that road, we will get to the end of what is the true uh, affection of our souls. Here's another good hint. Tim Keller put it this way. It's not the thing that you necessarily dream about. It's what you have nightmares about. It's what you wake up the next morning and you go, oh, I dreamt that I lost this, and my life fell to pieces. Well, you may say to, your, uh, say to me, Carlos, God's on the menu. He's right there over in the corner. He's, he's the side salad. See, everybody that I've talked to says it's important to have a balanced diet. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of God. But David shows us an important point. You see, the God of the universe will not share his glory with anyone else. Whatever is first on this menu occupies the throne of your life. The philosopher and theologian John Calvin put it this way, our hearts are a perpetual idol-making factory. And God says, I will only be one place, and that's at the top of your menu. David shows us that a balanced diet is a no diet at all, for it's only those who are hungry for God who get to feast on Him. So David teaches us this truth. The amount of hunger that you bring to God is the amount of satisfaction that God will bring to you. Well, this brings me to my second point. If it's a feast for the hungry, then it's a feast that satisfies. Listen at verse 5. David says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. David comes with this huge hunger and God serves up a feast. The key word here is will. David doesn't say my soul might be satisfied. My soul could be satisfied. Even my soul should be satisfied. He says my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. See, David knows what that means. He's the king. He's eaten like no one's eaten before but he says, my soul will be satisfied. Have you ever had a meal like that where you come and you sit down and it's a fantastic banquet and you eat and you enjoy and you inhale and imbibe and at the end of it, you push back from the table fully satisfied? That's what David's saying about his soul, that it will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. You know, I want to interview him and I say, David, look around at your life. How can you say that? Your life is crashing down around. How can you say your soul will be satisfied? And you know, David reveals to us in verse 3 the source of his confidence of why his soul will be satisfied because your love, O God, is better than life. Now David, you can't mean that. You had a fantastic life. You were the king of the country, Millions of people worshipped you. They bowed down to you. You were the king. Better than that? Yes, better than that. But David, you were the great warrior. I mean, you killed Goliath. You stood when all the other people were quaking and ran away. You were the guy that used to lead the army in battle. And when you would come back, people would be chanting in the street, saying Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. Life is better than that? And David would say, better than that. But David, you had access to anything you wanted. Wives, concubines, the finest of the lands. You lived in luxury. Are you saying that God's love is better than that? Yes. But David, wait a second. Better than even life itself? What difference does God's love make if you're dead? And David would say that God's love is better than, lo- uh, better than life because it's stronger than death. See, we have to understand this word that David uses when he says your love is better than life. In Hebrew, that word is chesed. It doesn't translate well into English. A better translation would be your covenant love. Your committed love is what he's talking about. Remember when I fell in love with Ellen, and, and uh, as we would spend more and more time together at college, my love for her grew stronger and stronger. But you see, there was a limit to where my love could go to her. Until one time I decided, this is it. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and health. Till death do us part. And I got up in front of a guy like me. And a crowd and I told everyone, that's the way it's going to be. See, my love then merged into chesed love. Committed love. But even there is not a full picture of what God's talking about with his committed love because that was a a mutual agreement, one that could be broken simply by going down to the courthouse. But you see, when God makes a covenant of love with people, God doesn't change his mind. God is not like a man that he could change his mind, that he would say one thing and do something different. It was a unilateral commitment. Regardless of the way you act, this is the way I'm going to act. That's why we call it a testament, a last will and testament. God has made this unilateral testament of love to David. Look here in 2 Samuel 7, when God speaks through the prophet Nathaniel and Nathan and he speaks to David. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, David is saying, the reason I'm satisfied is because God is for me regardless of my circumstances. To David, God's chesed love means everything because if he has God, he doesn't need anything else. In a book by Dr. Richard Seltzer called Mortal Lessons, we see a picture of this covenant love shown between a man and a woman. Dr. Seltzer tells of standing by the bed of a young woman. She's in recovery, regaining her consciousness, following an operation to remove a tumor that was in her cheek. Seltzer writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish, A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly. The young woman speaks, Will my mouth always be like this? She asks, Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God moment. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to, accommodate to hers to show her that their kiss still works. See, to David, God is for him. Who can be against him? And it's the same for us because God makes a covenant of grace With us. The marriage contract that he wrote was written in blood as God betrothed us to himself. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we, my friends, were the broken bride, our faces palsied by sin. But Jesus contorted his body to show that he would not abandon us his back whipped and lashed, his head crowned with thorns, his body twisted on a cross to show his love for us. Romans 8.31 puts it this way, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is this Hesed love of God for? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me ask you whatever you have ordered, is it capable of providing you with this never ending Hesed love? I had a car in college, it was a Hyundai neat car. I really loved it. There was only one problem. It didn't love me back. (laughs) As soon as it hit 60,000 miles, this car started to fall apart and it became a total guessing game whether the car was going to run or not. So I'd take the car, I'd go, you know, take the keys I was going to go, I was going to go somewhere and I'd go and it wouldn't start. And then sometimes it would start. But eventually, it got to the point where it wouldn't start at all. I had to jump the car every single time I wanted to use it. You see, I loved the Hyundai, but it didn't love me back. See, friends, we're giving ourselves to so many things that we love that just frankly don't love us back. What's yours? What have you ordered on this menu? Maybe this security is so tasty and appealing to you, and you're in the midst of building this financial fortress. The house is paid, the retirement's done, the college is paid, and you've built a house in such a way that nothing can touch you. But all too often we discover that house is shakier than we thought. When is enough enough? And we're left with this more anxiety. There never seems to be enough to provide this satisfaction of the soul. The truth of the matter is your money doesn't care about you because your money isn't alive. It's just an instrument. So what is it that you care for? What is it that's gonna get up on a cross and die for you to show you that he loves you? And what has the power to rise again from the grave? The power over nature, the power to control the word. What if you made a decision to stop feasting on those things, and rather to feast on the satisfying, never-ending love of God. How would your life be different? What would it look like? I think our lives would have less searching, frantic searching for things, and more satisfaction about what we have. Less taking from people to try to fill the emptiness in our souls, and more giving to those around us out of the overflow of what God has given us. Less anxiety in our life, and more peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness. The manifestations of a life satisfied. Would we have less troubles in our life? Maybe some, because the truth of the matter is a lot of our struggles and problems come from the fact that we're reaching after the things that don't love us and don't care for us but we would still have problems, just like David did. You know, Jesus never guaranteed to give us a worry-free life, but he said, take heart. I have overcome the world, and I will never leave you, or I will never forsake you. Maybe as you sit here listening, you're struggling to believe. You perhaps doubt. You've ordered too many times from that menu, and you've been disappointed too many times. You know, when I married Lee Ellen and we stood there before the pastor and we exchanged our vows, we exchanged one of these as well as a pledge and token of love between us. And the ring is helpful for when I doubt, I can remember the covenant of Hesed love that we have with one another. See, God has given each one of us who call on his name a gift as well. Whenever you doubt, you can turn to God and say, God, do you really love me? And do you know God's answer? Jesus, the covenant love symbol of God. The amount of hunger you bring to God is the amount of himself he brings to you. That brings me to my final point, that this feast that satisfies is also the feast that glorifies. Notice what happens with David. It's real interesting. His satisfaction flows into praise. Verse 3, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods with singing lips my mouth will praise you because you are my help I will sing in the shadow of your wings we were made for praise but we need power for praise David has experienced the blessing of God and it's overflowing into what he says you know Jesus words were true weren't they out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks one of the things Lee Ellen got this Christmas was a steam, I'll never pronounce it right, it's a steam cooker kettle type thing or something like that. It's a pot, okay, it's a pot, and it has a clear top on it. And I was looking at this nice stainless steel pot and this glass top, and it has a little little hole in it. I said, Lee Ellen, what's that hole for? She said, when you're cooking stuff and you know the steam starts to rise, if you don't have a place for it to escape the thing's just gonna blow up. See, that's what's going on with David, isn't it? The overflow of his heart is rising into praise of God. The power for authentic praise overflows with the satisfaction of God. See, we have in our lives what I would call a false dichotomy about God. See, on one side, we we know that God should be glorified. He deserves our praise, he made us, he's the king, he's the Lord, we know we should glorify him. But on the other side we have this whole, but my heart is empty and aching and I need to fill it up or I'm gonna go hungry. And for some reason we believe that never shall these two meet. David shows us that they're one in the same, doesn't he? Our heart is satisfied, in fact God is most glorified when our hearts are most satisfied in Him. We have a duty to be satisfied. It's the dangerous duty of delighting ourselves in God. Think about it. What, what can you bring to God? Your works? The great things that you've done? The truth of the matter is all of our works are as filthy rags before the Lord. Maybe our praise. I mean, we sang beautiful music. Maybe our praise is what we can bring to God. The truth of the matter is God has created entire classes of angelic beings that will sing far better than we can ever sing. Maybe it's our wisdom that we can bring to God. No, God knows all things. So what is it that we can bring to God that he does not have? We can bring our hunger, our naked desire to God that says, God, it's you or nothing else. You are the only one that will satisfy. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And the amount of hunger that you bring to God is the amount of satisfaction that God brings to us. So we must delight ourselves in God for God's sake, but we must also do it for man's sake. See, the truth of the matter is, we'll hear this message and we'll be encouraged and then we'll walk out into a dry and weary world All day long people are walking around with this menu, ordering, trying to find something that will satisfy. Hoping to catch a glimpse of what a satisfied heart looks like. You ever ran into someone who was satisfied in God? Something contagious about them. You just kinda wanna be around them. Something's going on there, something that you can't find on this menu. The most powerful witness to the world is a satisfied Christian. What would our church look like if we committed ourselves to being satisfied in Christ's Hesed love? Internally, you know what this church would look like? Man, we'd have a lot of fun together, wouldn't we? We'd celebrate a whole lot. That's why I like calling this Sunday service a celebration service. A chance for us to come together and remember the Hesed love of God for his people. Wow, wouldn't that be neat? to be together as a family, celebrating his love. But what would this community look like if we committed ourselves to this Hesed love, if we walked out that door? See, here's the truth. All Christianity is, is one beggar going to another saying, guess what, I found where the bread is. Come on, I'll show it to you. We all have a part to play, my friends. Each one of us is a testament of God's love. People don't just believe by hearing a sermon. People don't just want to hear the gospel, they want to see the gospel. You and me out in the world, testaments of God's Heset love. If we want to reach the world, we must become satisfied with God and then walk out the door to the world hungering and thirsting for a Savior. Everybody's looking for the feast, they just don't know his name. How do we do this? take the time every day to feast on his covenant love. One of my greatest joys and blessings is to wake up early in the morning and to seek the Lord, to come to the Lord, not with all the answers, to come to the Lord with a knife and a fork and a napkin. Lord, I'm hungry. Feed me. To come to his word for breakfast, lunch, dinner, to learn to take his word and ring it to get every bit of his truth into my life, into my heart. We forget very quickly, don't we? We're like people that look in the mirror and walk away and forget what we look like. We must choose to feast on his covenant love. In fact, growing up in Christ is learning to feed yourself. Another thing that we need to do to grasp this is to feed one another and to encourage one another. Why do we go eat meals together? Because it's fun, isn't it? It's the same thing with Christ. That's why we gather on Sundays. But you know what? If you're only gathering on Sunday and not walking with people in your life who are encouraging you to feast on the Lord, you're going to be a hungry Christian. Feast on the Lord in your home. Talk about him around the dinner table. When you rise and when you sit, when you put your kids to bed and when you wake up, Feast on the covenant love of the Lord. Growing up in Christ is learning to feed yourself. I want to conclude with this thought. Take a moment and play the tape forward in your mind of your life when it draws to its close. When all has been said, all the battles have been fought, and your life is drawing to an end, when you pick up the pen What is the psalm you will write for your own heart? What words will you use to describe the treasure of your heart? Will you be able to say at the end, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If that is your prayer, if that is your hope, what needs to change now in your life, what needs to change so the hunger of your heart is reflected in how you choose to live? Because when we get to the end of the trail of our affections and our money and our time and our energy, we will there truly find what occupies center role in our life. The amount of hunger that we bring to God is the amount of Himself that God brings to us. That amount It's up to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this treasure that David has unearthed for us, that you are the answer for the deepest longings of our heart. You are the meal that truly satisfies. You say in your word, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Lord, help us to empty our hearts and to turn to you so that you might fill it up. Lord, may this church be a filling station where we fill up on your chesed love and we go out into a world that's dry and weary to help feed the world with your gospel. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This song? Well, we've had an opportunity to hear God's word. Now is an opportunity to give back. We're going to have our opportunity for worship through giving. This is an opportunity for you to give back to the church to help all the ministries and service of the church. But there are other opportunities there as well. If you're interested in joining the church, that's a great opportunity for you to check that box, to throw that in the offering plate, so as we get closer to membership, we can start sending you out some things. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need to sit down with me or someone in the church and to talk more about how do I take advantage of this meal. I want to grow in Christ. I just don't know how to do it. Just write that down in that bulletin right there and drop that little piece of paper in the plate. I'll give you a call. We'll go sit down. We'll have coffee, and we'll talk more about what it means to become a follower of Christ. So let's go ahead and take up our offering. for the doxology.
1: Praise Him, all creatures here.
0: You may be seated. And now we come into a time of communion. As we walk through this journey of faith, God promises to feed us and to strengthen us. Lo, I am with you always to the ends of the age. And he provides us with means of grace for the journey to help us see. Communion is a beautiful picture of that. In, when we take communion, we see the picture of his body who was given for us. The blood that was poured out on the cross that we might have New life, and so it calls us to remember his gift, but there's even more to the table, a part that we don 't understand fully. The scripture in the Greek uh, talks about the sacraments, and they use them. Uh, the word is musterion, which means mystery. We don't fully understand what happens at the table. We do understand that God strengthens us and builds us up and encourages us in this walk of faith. As such, the table is for Christians. If you are a believer in Christ and you're following Christ and you need that strengthening, then this is the place for you to come, to take the bread and to take the wine and to be lifted and strengthened up. Maybe you're, you're a seeker. You're still on this journey of faith. You're not exactly sure what you believe, and you're processing. You know what? That's okay. I was there once myself, and many of us were there. This faith walk is a journey. I'd encourage you to refrain from the table. And rather, we have some things posted in the uh, bulletin that you can read on different meditations. Maybe you want some prayer instead. I've asked uh, uh, Barry and Ann to be in the back, just someone to come and pray and talk to during this time as well. The way we take communion is as the Spirit leads, you simply get up when you feel uh, ready to partake and to come to the center, to come and to take the elements, the bread and the wine, and then to circle back around to your chair. Now hear these words from the Lord as I set aside these elements for communion. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. let have our worship. Well, we'll serve our worship folks afterwards if you're participating in the service to come up first. Actually, the people who are helping me can uh, to come and then we'll serve the elements.